Curiosity. What are you so curious about? Everything. Mr. Curiosity. All righty, folks. Joe Snedeker here. You know me as Mr. Curiosity. And uh, oh, baby, am I curious about this topic today and this guy that I... frozen on me, Joe. Um, You're frozen? Uh Uh-oh, I'm not frozen. Are you frozen? You were frozen for a second. You want to start again? Yeah, well, no. Hey, I like doing it the way it is. Frozen. Frozen is a good way to start. Who needs perfection? Anyway, um, I got to tell you uh, how this whole thing unfolded because I think that's pretty funny. I'm with Lance Hoppin from the great band Orleans. Yes, a part of my teenage years and beyond. So I see that you guys were in Jersey back in June or July, I forget, on tour. So, you know, here's innocent me. I love going to concerts. I see that it was a private show, everyone. So I email on the Orleans website, um, you know, contact. Hey, I'm thinking about coming to your show. Uh, Could you give me any information? It says on the website it's private. And then I see the email back and I see the name on it, Lance Hoppin. And immediately I'm like, wait a minute. They must have a team of people who respond to their email. This can't be Lance. So I emailed <laughs> I emailed you back, and then you got back to me and said, this is Lance. It is a private show, but I couldn't believe it was you. And then we started emailing, and here we are. This is excellent. I am what my dad would call chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> yeah, uh, very hands-on. You know, we're a small organization, and I am the uh, the logistics. I'm kind of at the helm is what it is. I love it. So I have a couple more things to say, and then I'm not going to be a big mouth. I'm going to let you do all the great uh, talking because there's there's some good signs here. So number one is I played this at work today. I work for WNEP here in Northeastern PA. I was just getting ready, and I played this in the control uh, uh, room. I better not play anymore because there'll be copyright infringement. But there's this this 24-year-old girl, this is a good sign, in the background who starts screaming, I love that song, who's playing that? And I'm thinking, this is perfect. It's relevant now to all ages. If there's a 24-year-old screaming, it's not just, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond that love not only that song, but the band. And I played it for a couple other. I was doing a little sampling at work. And yes, everybody knows not only that song, but the band Orleans. You guys are are transient through time and you are the basis for Orleans. So this is excellent. Right. So where do you want me to start? Where do you have to? I'd like to start with this. So I I did just some basic research. I like to go in and be uh, honest and organic and flow with it. It says you guys started out in, um, in, in Woodstock, New York. Right. So let me, let, let like me back to where you started out. I like to know where the Hoppin boys were born and all that stuff. All right. So let's, let's not get too in the weeds, but uh, um, <laughs> I like the weeds. My parents were players. They were musicians. They met uh, right after World War II. My dad was a trumpet player. My mom was a really gifted uh, singer and piano player. She could play the classics with the best of them you know, trained and sing opera, or she could just build out the standards of her day. And, uh, and my dad was good, but she was great. So they met playing gigs and then um, they had, you know, they're married. Uh, what, there were what four. Part, what part of the country is this? Uh, this is Long Island, New York. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, my mom was born in Westchester and dad in Jamaica, Queens. So uh, 
there were four of us. My sister Linda was eldest, and my older brother Larry, myself, and my younger brother Lane. So they're all the L's, L L L, four L's. And uh, we were all musical. Linda never took to it um, big time, but Larry was prodigious. Anything he picked up, he could play. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by ear, and and uh, and and uh, so we were, and we were all trained one way or another. Larry played trumpet in the high school band. I played clarinet. Unfortunately, my dad brought one home one day and handed it to me, and I cried. <laughs> and then for the next eight years, I played clarinet. And uh, and Lane also was a trumpet player. So we all were trained one way or another. <clears throat> um, I guess the the biggest regret of my life was not letting my mother, who's a was a piano teacher too, I wouldn't let her teach me because it's your mother, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to read up. Yeah, it's a skill I don't have um, to this day. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, the four of us uh, were surrounded by music from all the time and grew up in that environment. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, fast forward, Larry was uh, two years advanced in school. Get out. Uh, this is high school. Yeah, they, they just kept pushing him forward, you know, which was good and not so good. He was, a, he was small, he was short, and he was two years young. So his peer group was older and bigger. And so that was, you know, psychologically had its own ramification. But he went off to college <laughs> at 16, I think it was. And I was just, uh, I was 13 or 12, you know, right around there. And uh, he was very intimidating because he, he was so good. And he, he uh, was in garage bands and all that before I ever picked up a guitar. But once he left, um, there was one in the closet and I started plunking on one string <laughs> to McCartney bass lines. And, and then I figured out, oh, this string relates to that string and that string to that. You know. So I gravitated to be, be a bass player, um, but not until he left the house. And then when he came back, suddenly he had this voice that nobody knew. Before that, I was like the, the fair-haired singer, right? My mom, yeah. yeah, we all said, you know, and I had that boyish falsetto thing. But he came back with this voice. It was like, wow, where, where'd that come from? So um, you know, he, he was he so in high school, he was not singing in the house or anything. He was playing instruments, no. he was excelling in school, but he wasn't he wasn't you never heard his voice, you never heard the golden pipes. Right. I never saw his garage fans play any kind of gig or anything or rehearse. And I don't know really what he did there. I know other guys sang, but he played uh, piano and he played guitars. And but he didn't he never revealed that voice until he came back from school. And so he went to college because, you know, the folks insisted you got to have something to drop, fall back on. You got to be a music teacher. Right. So he went begrudgingly. Huh, what was he majoring in? He was a music major, right? He wanted, he was going to be a music teacher at Ithaca College, uh, upstate New York, and he, uh, but he, but he dropped out after a while. Like I don't know when a semester or two or a year, or whatever, and he dropped out. And they talked him into going back, and then he dropped out again because all he really wanted to do was play. And uh, and uh, so when it was my turn, and I I was. I was near top of my class. The only reason I wasn't valedictorian was I started goofing off in uh, my junior year. I learned how to do that. So <laughs> it came my turn to be go to college. I, I didn't want to go, so they didn't force me. And that was a good thing. So what this why do you think, to get into your brain, why do you think if you know you have this, this air of intellectual superiority, why didn't you 
I, I know music was your inspiration perhaps at the time, but why didn't you say, you know, I'll go be engineer. I'll be a, a doctor. I'll be a lawyer. It just didn't interest you or was it rebellion? Why not? Want to go uh, because, well, when I was a kid, I thought I might become a vet. I had a love of animals. Okay. Um, and, but that, you know, that didn't turn out to be my path, my calling. Um, like Larry, I wanted not, I didn't want to pursue fame. I just wanted to be a working professional Musician, that's where oh, my okay. heart, right? Ever since the Beatles played Ed Sullivan and it plunked I plunked up. I got to stop you right there because I'm 55 years old and huh? you're just a little older. But my, my point is every band that I admire, whether it's Jackson Brown, whether it's Blue Oyster Cult, whether it's Aerosmith, pick any band. You guys all say the same thing, which is totally amazing to me. It's like. And I think here's how we got the brightest and best years in rock and roll in the 70s. I think all of you guys who were brilliant, who could have done anything, you see the Beatles on TV and it changed your whole life. And you guys had no other um, objective but yet to be them. So now we get the best and the brightest of 18-year-olds in the country who want to play rock. And then what comes next? The best music in history, the 70s. That's my theory. That's a good theory. You guys all have the same story. I love it. So that changed yes. you like that. Right. So it was, a, it was a, uh, a seminal moment. It was like a turning yeah. point for a lot of people because there was something just uh, magical about them. There was something un intangible. Un you couldn't put it in a word. It was just a thing, right? It, and so it was inspiring in a lot of ways. So and it, it gave permission. It's like, wow, if, they, if that can happen then this can happen. So in my parents' day and why they sent Larry to college to have something to fall back on was the music industry as we know it. And, and even in the 60s, as it was known, it didn't exist for them, right? So they didn't know that could be a thing. <clears throat> and so Larry got uh, his band up in Ithaca. This is a good story. because it, <laughs> it all leads somewhere. <clears throat> Uh, so his band in, in Ithaca, he was in several bands while he was in college, but the one I want to mention is called Bafalongo, B-O-F-F-A-L-O-N-G-L, Bafalongo. For a time period here, is this, is this late 60s? This is 68-ish. Okay. All right. Okay. So Bafalongo got a deal on uh, United Artists and uh, made a record, and I went to see them in the, you know, the village, you know, I took a train in, wore my leather pants or <laughs> my leopard paste, whatever it was, you know? So Larry was doing it, you know, and I was a kid and he was doing it. And it was like, wow, I want to do that. And they, they made a second album. And on that second album, there was a guy came in the band named Sherman Kelly. Now Sherman Kelly wrote dancing in the moonlight. <clears throat> oh, so the last version of that band, the very last version of it, included Larry Sherman, Sherman's brother, Wells Kelly, who Larry had heard play around town, a fantastic drummer. Okay. And, and so it was uh, Larry Wells Sherman, a guy named Bob Lineback, who we'll come back to, <laughs> and uh, a bass player, Milton J. Anyway, a version of that band cut the original version of Dancing in the Moonlight. And this, will come, this story will come back. So when Wells quit that band, 
He did it to join John Hall in Woodstock, New York, because John wanted to start his own band. <clears throat> and, after, and that was the final nail in the coffin for that band. So John, so John and Wells, Hall and your brother didn't know each other at the time, or did they? Well, they had met, and actually they had met in, a, in New York City okay. through Wells. Oh, okay. At a loft, <laughs> at a studio where Dance in the Moonlight was cut. It's a very convoluted uh, family tree kind of story. Yeah. So, so, so when Larry and John met, they didn't know each other at that at that session, but it was already going on. And Larry picked, Larry picked up a guitar, and, and they found themselves playing double double guitar, twin solos to uh, Age of Aquarius. Like, <laughs> Imagine. So it was just talking, like speaking the language of music. Yeah, yeah. So later on, John and Wells were making a band, went through some guys, didn't work out. Wells said, let's get Larry. So they called him down from Ithaca. And that was the genesis of Orleans. And now we're in um, like January, February, 1972. Okay. Just a trio. And I went to see that band too, which was fantastic because... Wells played drums, but he also played great keyboards and he could play a little bass. He could play foot drums and bass at the same time. And he had a, he had a one song he'd play guitar on. John was playing guitar, but he could play drums and he could play bass and he could play piano, right? Larry was playing mostly bass, but of course he could play guitar and keys. And so they kept switching like from song to song. And it was like, it was amazing. It was like, unbelievable so that happened this was my senior year and at at high school and I graduated in June and by the fall that trio wanted to expand they needed to to grow and so they called they recruited the little brother here comes the little brother I love it and I didn't fail the audition you know (laughs) I was uh, definitely like you know, out of my element, I was over my head, Yeah, but they let me in and it was like on the job training in a lot of ways. And that was, uh, I think our first gig was like Halloween night, maybe in Rochester, New York. And, um, and then our first record, then we went in the spring, we did our, uh, toughed it out in New York city showcasing and got a record deal. And we were recording summer 73 and that's where the, First album comes from. First album. So were you originally you wanted to play the bass, or they just said, "Here, you're going to play the bass," or you played no, a little? No, bit I was a I was a bass player. You were a bassist. So the clarinet yeah. faded to a bass. You just learned it on your own, or how did that? Happen? Yeah, well, clarinet was a school thing, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Right? My daughter I, used to play it. I did all that, and you know, I did all that. Meanwhile, I picked up the bass about uh, when I was twelve, and by fourteen, I was in my first band. Oh. And it was what a time of Chicago and all that stuff. And yes. So we had a nine-piece band. It was four horn players from the band, from the concert band that I knew, and I was the bass player and background singer. And uh, we did all those school functions and played, you know, did all that stuff. Played the proms, that kind of stuff. And then when I graduated that summer, a spinoff of that band, we played clubs. I don't know, five nights a week or something on Long Island. I was making, you know, for for an eighteen-year-old kid living home making $125 a week in 1972 is I had a real job. Right. I love it. Yeah. So, so were the parents okay with all this or did they, they were great with that. And, oh, and you know, they, like I said, they didn't make me go to school cause I didn't want to. 
and they saw the you know what happened with Larry and we each had a little you know fund that they had been building since we were little kids so I had some money to walk away with and go up and start my life in Woodstock New York I, I bet I bet deep down inside since music was in their genes and now your genes they were happy they were probably thinking this this can't be overlooked it's meant to be they were they were supportive and they were happy with trepidation and oh yeah yeah you know because you know they who knew right who knew so, so, so what about the name Orleans? Why did that happen? Or was it even called Orleans at the time? Yeah, that 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 predated my time. And so, uh, but the, the the story that they tell, the, the trio, the Wells Larry John trio, always told was they couldn't agree on a name. They had to have they had to have one, you know. And they kicked around all these names until Orle- uh, uh, Wells kicked, spilled out Orleans because he had come back from France. He had been in Orleans. Oh. And they were they were playing, you know, meters and Alan Toussaint and and swampy stuff, along with, you know, they were writing songs, but they were doing a lot of covers. Right. So they said, well, we'll use this name and then, you know, we'll change it. And then, you know, it never got changed. In the first album or two has a little more of a blues influence and it's got a little highbrow sound to it. You know, maybe a little bit the first one, the second one. Yeah, the first I mean, we were a kind of a funky bar band. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of R&B tinge stuff, you know, basically that style until you get a little deeper. So made the first album, you know, no big, no big shakes, uh, cold following broke regionally. New York oh, upstate. so immediately there was there was a little bit of a, of a tick. You felt something. Well, it broke in upstate New York and, you know, <laughs> and Boston, now Boston, Boston, that kind of thing. 72, 73, I'm trying to think what's hitting across the country now. The Beatles are broken up. You got some, uh, like you said, Chicago. You, you, you got singer-songwriters emerging all over the place. You have the our, first album, our first album was released on ABC with this, in a batch with Rufus' first album. Um, Steve, uh, and so, you know, Class of 70 three went on, you know, we went on, but they went on bigger. But you know what I'm saying? Are the first two albums under the same record company as all the other ones? I didn't check on that. I mean, or right, so, was so it we easy did to get a deal? First one was ABC. Second one we produced ourselves, oh. and uh, and they they hated it. And it was you know it was pretty, it was pretty self indulgent. But uh, but and they didn't hear any hits. Now what's ironic is and and they they were right. But what's ironic was Dance with Me in its first form, and Let There Be Music. They were both on that album, but they weren't hit Polished. record. They were, they were. That's right. They didn't have. They didn't have. They weren't hit records. They were hit songs with, but not uh, hit records. So, yeah. We to, to hear this from a fan, I, you know, I must admit, don't get your feelings hurt. I always skip over the first two albums too. That's not. It's not my. It's not my style. But I, I may be unique in that. Well, the first album remains for some. You know. Right. The, you know, the favorite, you know, and it's very raw. We did it in 15 days on 15 tracks at Muscle, Muscle Show Sound, right? Because uh, that's because track one didn't work, right? So we had 15 tracks and they wanted to do it in a week, but we said, please, could we have two weeks. Yeah, ABC. Are they throwing money at you or how does that work? Did they say, no, here's, a, here's 10 was, grand, here's 20 grand, make me an L? I don't know how that works. I forget that deal specifically. It wasn't a big dollar deal, but we work with Roger Hawkins and Barry Beckett, who are oh. legendary like yeah. players, okay. players and producers. So they sensed the talent. They sensed something in you guys. This wasn't just some bar band. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we got hooked up with them, made that record. It didn't do much, but it got us on the map. We made the second album, ABC Candace. Didn't release it, except for, oddly enough, in the Netherlands, where we had a strong, strong following. <laughs> Who knew? So then we went back to New York City. We did our showcase thing again. And as, it, and the, as the story goes, and I think this is true, this is the way I always tell it. We went to Max's Kansas City. We played seven nights in a row, two sets a night, three on the weekend. And I believe it was the last show of the last night where we were just shot. <clears throat> that Chuck Plotkin, who was the head of A&R, VP at, at Asylum, came to hear the band because there was a buzz. So we, I think he heard us on the last show of the last night. <clears throat> it makes a good story anyway. We don't yeah, know. Oh, I like it. I like it. And he heard, he heard through everything and he said, yeah. And he signed us to Asylum where, you know, it was Jackson Brown and the Eagles and Joni Mitchell and you, you name it. And you fit in with that Southern laid back California vibe. You'd swear you guys are from there. I know it, it fits. That. It worked, you know, so it worked. And uh, so what Chuck, year is this? 73, four? This is 74. Uh, okay. Right. And Chuck heard those songs, Let the Music Dance With Me. He heard them for what, you know, their merit. He made arrangements with ABC to buy the rights to re-record. Oh. And we, we did those songs and Let the Music cracked the made like 40 something on the charts cracked the door and dance with me knocked it down and we, then we were but is he like the mutt is he like the mutt laying at the time like does he know this is going to be good i just need to polish it up or like does he say you guys okay you need to be a little more poppy less 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 riffy and bluesy i like how does that does he or in and, and, and is it and is it sequestering your 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 creative outlet your vibes like this yeah. guy's telling me to do this and do that it's interesting. He's, he was not a songwriter. He wasn't a player. Right. He was a great student of music. He knew what felt good. He oh, knew song structure and he knew how to persuade us to, you know, take, take this idea and run with it or change that and, and get through. And um, so he well, helped, he helped mold it. The reason I ask is because to me, and again, I represent tens of thousands, millions of people, let there be music is a, is well, you know, it's a classic, but that's one of those albums. There's not a bad song on it. I'm I'm looking. Fresh wind, outstanding. Dance with me. Time passes. Your life. Let there be music. Give one heart. It's got a little funk. It's got pop. It's got singer songwriter vibes. Yeah. Got an Americanized reggae, which was yes. Kind of, <laughs> we kind of were like vanguard of that. Yeah. So did you finish this album and think, oh my god, we nailed it? Like, was it? Did you feel it? I mean, this we is just playing, an excellent we're... album. We were pleased with it. Yeah, we like, and, and it was a learning growth experience for everybody, you know, especially me. So, so um, coming out of that experience, of course, then Dance With Me hit the radio. Oh, then everything changed at home. My mom was like, uh, she hears her son biggest on the radio. fan, you know, like telling everybody, you know, and so at that point, and John tells the same thing, the parents stopped bugging you to go back to school or whatever. You know? <laughs> They get it. And, and without, without, uh, I don't know, gossiping here is, is John Hall, is he sitting down writing? I, I think he's the songwriter of most of those songs or all those songs is John and his, his former wife, Johanna were prolific songwriters oh, and, and high quality songwriters. They put out a lot of quantity and quality. Meanwhile, Larry was writing, uh, Wells was writing, everybody was vying for space 
but John was just the bull, you know, or the, yeah. the, Leo, the Leo, the lion. So he was the, the absolute driving force. And you guys accepted that and said, okay, let's let him write these great, these hits, so to speak, these pop well, the, charms, the, the these song, nuggets. The songs spoke for themselves. Okay. They all had a past muster, you know, with, with producer and, and internally. And everybody got something, you know, but John got the lion's share. And because John wrote all these songs, he sang all these songs. And, the, but then ironically, the ones that were out of his range, like the lead on Dance With Me, yeah. and later the lead vocal on Still The One, these were not in John's range. And they defaulted to Larry. And so the magic combination that happened. The magic combination was the writing of the halls and Larry's voice. So the but ones that become the hits are not like planned, let's have this guy sing it. Your brother, it's more like he didn't he couldn't hit the what what the expectations were. So you defaulted to the next guy. That's interesting. I'm sorry, you froze on me again. What was the end of that sentence? I said, that's very interesting that it wasn't like a planned attack that these two, three poppy nuggets would be, would be sung by someone else. No, um, no, it's just like, it all was organic. And so another key thing is we kind of thought of ourselves as players who sang and Chuck thought of us as singers who played. Yeah. And, and so he approached it from a different side. And you can hear from the first, second album into the, like, the music and then Waking and Dreaming, you can hear the development of the vocal style, the polish, the doubling, the, you know, the exactness of it. And you have to remember, there was no auto-tune. There was no digital editing. Right. There was no fixing stuff. You had to have three or four guys in at the same time on the same mic in balance singing in tune and the same phrasing matching each other all at once. And then you had to, then you had to match it. You had to do it again. And so all that stuff is for real, you know, now there's like lots of tricks and we take advantage of them. I was going to say you're taking advantage of it now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, everybody does. And that's what, you know, and it saves time and, you get a similar result, but that all that stuff's all organic. Every bit of it, um, you know, it was a, it, you could do things, but it was not like you can do these days. So, 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 so there you go. Let the music. Uh, so that's 1975. Does that. And dance with, so, so dance with me being a hit changed everything again, because say, right. that funky R and B. Yeah. And now ha was like, America, you know, it's yes. like, right. So we wound up touring with Melissa Manchester. So we got, oh. ca we got cast in a kind of an MOR thing. Oh, okay. And so that, and we adapted to that. So these are just stages of, of, of the growth. And um, I would think it would be more like Eagles, Firefall. Why didn't they throw you there? Why didn't they? Yeah, we never. Well, Firefall in those days, I and mean, we tour a lot with them now, but they were touring with uh, Fleetwood Mac. You know, that's where I, they went. I throw you in with them, too. I mean, it's all very similar to that. It's that. That's just what, you know, radio. We had that hit and it kind of cast us in that in that style, even though it was very a atypical of everything else we were doing uh, that's another conf that's another confession i have to make to you and i feel like i'm at the confessional i was born and raised a catholic guy 
So when I was born in 66, so I'm coming of age in the 70s. And, you know, in the 70s, classic rock was just starting what is now classic rock. So, you know, Foghat, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheap Trick, name all those bands, Todd Rundgren, the list goes on. This is what all my buddies were listening to. This is what was on FM as it was growing. But yet I had this softer side when I'm listening to when no one's around Orleans, Ambrosia, Jackson Brown, but I really couldn't tell my friends. Do you know uh, what I mean? Is there, is there a little yeah. bit of that with you, you know, with you guys, you know what I mean? Like you come well, on, like, I, I don't mean, know. There's so, Eagles, maybe even early Eagles falls into that. Like uh, this is, well, you can't fault the e- Eagles are just class act all the way around. I mean, no, you know a, what I mean? You guys had like that softy. Right. Or, we, were, I, we were soft rock. You know, the doobies were edgier. Yes. Right? Yes. Sim- similar, but edgier. Yeah. You know, and that was, well, I was a thing, little but... embarrassed to say that I was listening to you. And I'm sorry to tell you that. Right. No, I get it. I get it. We were the soft rockers. That was the thing. We were never sex symbols. We ne- we weren't Aeros- Aerosmith. You know what I mean? We, right. That was not our thing. We were more like uh, music for uh, thinking people. You know? Yes. Like, and, or, or, and very female audience. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, yeah. And when I'm 13, 14, 15, 16, and the testosterone is flowing and all my buddies are, you know, listening to some heavier stuff. I was really listening to you guys, but I couldn't tell anyone at the time. I know. <laughs> like, like they were Beatles guys and they were Stones guys. And you were yeah. one of the one of the other. <laughs> and we were basically Beatles guys. You know? Yeah, but it does seem like you were pigeonholed into something you weren't because you're right there with the Eagles. You're right there with with with. Uh, even someone like the Marshall Tucker band, maybe, I don't know, to me, you're something what you were not pigeonholes as you're, you're thinking man's rock, soft rock, but you were, there was a, I don't Yes. It did have that glossy sugary pop vibe to it too. You have to admit that. So that was part of the polish. And we moved forward from let the be music album to the waking and dreaming album. And again, no, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff on that. And, and still the one was just a song among songs. And Chuck also helped sculpt that. Another like, classic. Those two albums are in my top 10 of all time. So this one, it's outstanding. Re- you know, Reach. I mm-hmm. can just, that pumps me up every moment I listen to it. Just listening to Reach. Spring Fever. I love these songs. So there you, there you, there you hit, now you hit a nerve. because So uh, Still the One was, you know, a big hit. Yeah, we were, but, you know, it was a big hit uh, in the summer of 76. We were on tour with Jackson Brown. Oh, really? Yeah, and this is kind of really the peak. Was he and, the pretender then? I think was that it was the I think that would have been um, it was just late for I the think sky. It was, yeah, this pretender was just I think running on empty was the next thing. You know, it's right in that time period. And he's another one of my favorites. He's right up right. there. With, so what, what's that like? Where Did you well, see him he, as a he, peer? Or did you see him as this god? I, I was a huge Jackson Brown fan. Unbelievably big. Yeah. Like, I wanted to be Doug Haywood. I wanted to be his, oh, bass, yeah. his bass player, right? <laughs> but I was, a, I was a stoner. I was a young kid. I was okay. intimidated by every thing around me because I was just hanging on for dear life with these older, more accomplished people. Oh, I was, I, I was afraid of being found out to be not that good. And, oh man. You know, is that, that was my, my, my head. And for all the time we spent on the road, I never had one word, one conversation with Jackson. Never, never, ever. 
So, so, so you meaning you're on the same tour bus or not? On the same tour and, and never you had. You want to approach him. Get out of here. No, no, no. Like, what am I going to say? I love your music band. Yeah, I know. You don't want to be that guy. Like I am right. to you. Right. <laughs> and he, so he was the, uh, he was the headliner. We were the opener. And there you go. Is he cool? So, was he cool the whole time? Was he just. Uh, as far as I could tell, but, you know, I have limited memory of the time. And uh, so you kind of knew your place in a way. Like, okay, I'm, I'm a younger, newer guy here. I'm uh, a. I'm an upcoming band, but we're we're killing across the country. But I better just stay put. Uh, yeah, I was just <clears throat> yeah better better yeah under wraps. Oh, that's so cool. that's that cool. was that, and and um, so on the heels of that, on the success of still the one, Larry was sure that Spring Fever should be the next single. He was sure that because Whoa. it was it was similar sounding, it was in keeping, it would have done its cycle and it would have peaked in the summer in the spring of 77 it yeah. would have been time right and he had written it right and so he it was his time but john being the lion insisted <laughs> no 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 and he lobbied he lobbied heavy reach has to be the next single because john always wanted to be the lead hit singer and he never really accomplished that oh, so wow. that kind of tension Egos are always involved, I guess, right? That's right. That kind of tension was happening big time. And John won that thing and Reach did not. I was going to say, Reach a, never went anywhere. It was like a mid-Atlantic mid, mid States regional something or other. But it would, no, it was, it was a, in retrospect, I believe Larry was right. It was a failed, it was a bad call. It was a missed opportunity. Oh, that's cool. They're my two deep cuts. So I don't think anyone else, you know, that's my deep cuts. How dare you? Uh-huh. So, so that kind of stuff was brewing. We also had a, had added a drummer, another drummer, Jerry Murata, came in between the two albums, between Let the Be Music and uh, Waking and Dreaming, played on Still the One. Actually, Wells was sick that day. Wells was sick the day we cut Still the One. So Jerry was yeah. the only, Jerry was the only drummer on it and it worked fine. So it's just one of those things that happened. And um, so, well, Lance, I have to ask you then. So. That song, Still the One, was written by John, right? John Johanna. Is it, is it just, you know, your classic happy together, love, lovey-dovey song? There's no deeper meaning to that, right? Uh, the story is that Johanna's friend approached her and said, everybody's got writing all these breakup songs. Can anyone write a oh. stay together song? So Johanna scribbled a lyric on a envelope. Get out. And handled it, handed to John, and he said he had the changes in fifteen minutes. And usually, that's how the the the, the, the most you know, poppy great songs turn out. No, no problem at all; they just happen. They are and then we played it, we played it at gigs, yes, certain way, and then we got in the studio and then redefined it, and uh, it came out what it, how it came out. And there, then was like, who, who knew? So, and now so stop me, please, if I'm uh, crossing my boundary. So. WNEP, the TV station I work for, is an ABC affiliate. And when I'm just a teenager at the time, there's Happy Days, there's Laverne and Shirley. ABC and WNEP, the station I work with, ruled the airwaves. They ruled the country with all these hit shows. And then your song becomes the theme of ABC right. that 1976-77. So how does that happen? And do you guys get any revenue from that? Or, you know, what's that all about? It was actually 77, 78 with the years. Okay, of, 77, 78. And so what I'm what I'm telling you is this this tension had been building oh. on a lot of fronts because 
Uh, and so everyone vying for space, only so much space, these tensions, what song is going to be the next single, all that stuff. Right. Um, and then this deal comes along for John, which is just icing on the cake because John, as it turns out, and this was not known to me for maybe decades, uh-huh. he, for his own reasons, let's say he said that, he decided it was time to go out on his own. And I think that deal helped enable that economically and otherwise, like proof, proof of the pudding. And we didn't have any structure to share that kind of money. There was no publishing pool. There was nothing like that. So it was, it was then the haves and the have nots. And so it's one thing when you're building and everybody's pulling in the same direction for the similar goal. It's another, another thing when you have something only it's not spread evenly and then agendas diverge. So come the fall of 77, John left the band and um, I was the last guy to know. Larry knew before the fact I was told, you know, it's over. That's the done deal. And he, he went on to his solo career and we were left like, what do we do now? And that, um, so does that, he that put a lot of stuff in the air and, it, and, uh, and, uh, and everybody had opinions, management, management didn't step in and say, you know what, John, you can have your solo career, but you should have the band too. They didn't try, Why to, not, right? they didn't try to heal it. They didn't do that. It was, that was another bad thing. And the label said to Larry, you know, your band Orleans is good, but you can, you can make a better band around you. And then, so that got me out. Right. I was out of the band. Why? Oh, why? I don't get it. Because, you know, people put stuff in people's ears. Yeah. But your brother's the big wig. I know, but it was like, no one's going to do that to their little brother. Well, it was like, he thought it was like, okay, I'll do that. And they, and so, uh, he he got uh, Wells continued Larry and Wells, and the guy I mentioned before Bob Lineback yeah. from from Buffalo. He became in Orleans, and a guy named R.A. Martin out of L.A. And they made new demos and they made a whole bunch of things. And meanwhile, I went off to play with a guy named Garland Jeffries. Jeff Jerry Marotta Jerry Marotta got me in that band. Garland was like a cult hero at the time, hmm. and ironically. Even though Larry kicked me out of Orleans, <laughs> Jerry and I recruited Larry to play with Garland. So, so yeah, but this is your own brother. Are you ticked off? I know. Can, so you, it's just, can you go into the bedroom and have a fist fight and say, what are you doing? Or it wasn't like that. Yeah, it was more like call a lawyer and see what happens. You know? Oh, so that's that. Oh, you know, but there was nothing to be done there. So anyway, this time period, 78, a lot of change, a lot of, a lot of this and that. And, um, and then ultimately, Larry's saying, "Yeah, you need to be back in 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 here." And we shopped we shopped these demos. The last one, the last one, cut in Larry's living room, was "Love, Love Takes, Takes Time." Time, okay. Yep, and that's yep. a forever album. The next one, four track de- four track demo cut in his living room at the tail end of, uh, you know, these are the songs we have. And that so got he, shopped. He, so he, your brother wrote that song. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote that, and his his, his ex wife had a hand in it too. But and if that, no one, if no one knew anything you're saying, to me it's a seamless transition. It seems like all the other great songs from Orleans and the and the preceding albums. Like no one would say, "Oh, this is a different vibe" or "This is a different song right. type." It seems to flow perfectly. All the things that were 
Larry's voice, you know, key key thing. Yeah, vocal, yeah, yeah, yeah. The vocal sound and and approach, key thing. The, the, you know, the pop nature of the songs. Yeah, they all worked fine. So we shopped that, and and uh, there were two labels. We wanted to be on Epic, and they they and and they made it made us a good offer. But there was another label called Infinity, which we gave them a number that they should have said, "You're you're kidding me, right?" No, they said, "Okay." Oh, really? So you just and shot so, at work? Yeah, it's like oh, that's great. It's, it's, it's like stupid, <laughs> stupid money. So uh, we want we wound up there, and which might have been a mistake too, because we went through all that money. We went through it all. Oh man, we spent a fortune. <clears throat> and, a classic um, rock and roll story. You're telling it me. is, and they were they uh, they were only in existence for like two years. They were the last of the big time spenders. They got sued and shut down. And and so uh, after Love Takes Time was a number 11. It was a hit. And we did another year or something of touring. The 80s set in and the 80s were not, uh, not kind. No, I know. That's when the whole world shifted. I got that. Kind of before I get to that 80s album, because I got a story to tell you about that. I still uh, with that with that um, with the song, though, still the one. Are you saying that that? John, because he wrote the song, got all of the monetary profits from that, like with the ABC and the song across the country and all these TV shows and everything. Or, or Orleans didn't share that. Is That's that right. So the way the way it works is this. When somebody licenses a song, in other words, right. they they contract to use it for a movie or a commercial or a whatever. OK. Uh, in this case, you know, a big time campaign then there are two different pools of money. One goes to the writer and publisher. And the other that's goes... John, and that's John. And the other goes to the, the who owns the master. Now, if they're not using our version, as artists, we get nothing. So they didn't use your version? No, because they never used our version. They oh, made I sound alike. I never knew they that. They made sound alikes, right? You know, you remember the, what it sounded yeah. like. Yeah, it was little, I never like, thought about that. Excerpts and parody lyrics and other singers and little, you know, they never used our version. So none of that money flowed to us. It all flowed to, you know, to the jingle people and to the pop writer publisher. Which is John. So, right. Yeah. And so that's how that works. It's just how it works. It's not like anybody slighted anybody. It's that we didn't have any mechanism to share, share that stuff. Never did. Remember. So do you remember being sitting home watching TV and your songs playing on ABC? Forget about the radio stations here. It's on national TV and thinking. I don't remember that, but I probably, Uh, you know, so, uh, so that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's how that works. So John went off, you know, John went off. He had the John Hall band, uh, Bob Lineback again, wound up with him in that band. It's, and I think John had, I remember having that album. There was a couple hits or maybe one he had in, in the early eighties or late. Yeah, well, power, was, power was kind of an anthem for the Yeah, anti-book. Okay. He, he was the spearhead. Like neon behind. lights on it or something. I'm trying to picture the album cover. Okay. There was, it was power and there's all of the above was the two albums. John Hall albums. But basically but, he tanked with that. I mean, that didn't well, blow up across the nation. No offense to John. He did, a, you know, he didn't have a top 10 hit like we did. I wonder if that, but, I wonder if his expectations were, uh, were let down is what I'm saying. Did he think I should have stuck with Orleans? We are riding high. I should have, 
I, I wonder at the time. Well, maybe, maybe not at the time. I mean, <clears throat> we'll get to that moral of that story. But what he, <laughs> what, what he did do, he was the drive. He was the nexus for MUSE, the Music, Musicians United for Safe Energy, which was the No Nukes concerts, Jackson, which included, wow. you know, Springsteen, yeah. Bonnie Raitt, and Jackson, and Crosby, Stills, oh, John, Nash, John, and the John, Doobies. John, that, was, that? I didn't that, was, that was John's baby. Whoa. Yeah, and Power, the song he had written because they were going to build a plant five, five miles away from his oh, house. Oh, got it. That was the anthem for that whole movement, from Pete Seeger to uh, James Taylor. James Whoa. Taylor singing it. So that, he, you know, he scored on the map there with John Holbatt and the No Nukes thing. And it was part of his activism, which he's always been about. And I was going to say, since he became a state rep in New York. He became a congressman eventually, yeah. Yeah, so, so did, did you always sense that in him? He, he, he political, uh, yeah, he, liberal he thoughts, be, very... He would take time in a concert. He would take an inordinate amount of time on stage quoting statistics and and nuclear this and that. Oh, okay. and it's like, John, please. Oh, I see. Right. Please. Yeah. There's, a, there's a time and a place, right? Yeah, please stop. You know? <laughs> and, and so he was always about it, um, but he made a thing of it. So that was, uh, so we entered the 80s and you got to remember, this was like oil crisis where people were gas lined up. Yeah. Um, so oil was short. So labels were melting down vinyl to reuse it. Um, they were cutting rosters. Cassette tape happened in like 79 and people were copying albums, not buying them. I did that. I'm a horrible yeah. person. All this stuff happened and the labels cut acts and cut, cut, cut staff. And it went into a whole different thing and t- time changed and it was not our time. So we, we kind of folded. We wound up in 80, end of 81 broke basically. Get out, done. And uh, and then went into like more versions of the band, lesser versions, and played everywhere we could get a gig because we had bills to pay. And we, Larry and I, did that till 1984. <clears throat> and in, the, in September of '84, we did a particular gig. Larry lost his voice. It was like it was like okay, enough. We're done. We can't. We're done. We're just done. That was September of '84. Now, Wells Kelly our fabulous drummer who had left us in 81, again, a lot of tension. He was on tour with Meatloaf in, in uh, he was playing for Meatloaf and they were in London and he was partying with Huey Lewis and whomever, whatever. And uh, he had a rock and roll death. He just, he, he partied too hard. He, he didn't make it home. Uh, he fell on his stoop and uh, he vomited and, and asphyxiated. And that was tragic. He was like 34 years old. Wow. And really at the top of his game. So, so that's the first tragedy we'll talk about. And that event, though, that created a memorial concert back in Ithaca, New York, okay. where it all started. I was not able to attend, but Larry and John did. And this was seven years after the breakup, you got to imagine. And so they got on stage for the first time after seven years, played together, sang together, and went, wow. That's really cool. So, so that was time to bury the hatchet. And um, we had a standing offer, or John had a standing offer from Tony Brown, who is a 
Nashville music mogul, you know, who played piano for Elvis, you know, that kind of thing, and came in the label head at Universal, MCA Universal Nashville. And so Tony said, if you ever want to do your thing, you know, come talk to me. So we got a deal to cut an album in Nashville. This was 85, called Grown Up Children was the album. And we got Nashvilleized, uh, yeah. which, which means you don't play on your record. You sing on your record. And they use all the, all the session players. Get out. John got to play on tracks like to guide them. Larry got to do a few overdubs. I didn't play a lick. David Hungate, the yeah. bass player from Toto, was on the production team, and he played all bass. And we just we were singing, we sang over it. And it was neither pop nor country. It was right. We bucked the system, and it came out in the middle. And it was there was no restless heart at that point. There was nobody who had done that successfully, like crossed over. Uh, yeah, right? it was before that. So it it it, it was it was pre restless heart, and it failed to make a mark. And so that was 85, 86, 87. We were done and we, we folded again. But you skipped over uh, one of a kind, which I kind of like. Now, well, okay. you're, so, you're, not, you're not there? Or are you, all right, you're all right we'll, back, we'll backtrack. So we talked about the 80s. Forever, 79, Love Takes Time, hit. Yeah. And the label folds. All right. It's an, it's an MCA subsidiary. We want nothing more than them to let us go. Okay. So that we can shop having come off a hit. And they say, no, we want you to make oh, another one album. more. Album. Make, make another album. So we make another album. It doesn't do anything. They and they bury it. And, and there we are. And and, and I'm, in, then, I'm I'm in 10th grade. I bought it and I liked it. Okay. I liked it. I like <laughs> circles. I like one of a kind. I like found someone. I like move on is a great song. That's not even the album we're talking about yet. We're talking about, it was simply entitled oh, Orleans. Oh, so I don't even know of that one, maybe. It's entitled Orleans. We call it Orleans 1980. And oh, it was, I don't even know that one. It was recorded at Wells, you know, Wells's property on a cabin. And it had everybody who'd ever been in the band. It was me, Larry, Wells, Jerry Murata, his brother, Rick Murata, was on it. Bob Lineback, John Hall played on the tracks. Uh, Ari Martin, who was in our band. My brother Lane did some cameo singing. Everybody, uh, whoever, anybody who'd ever been in the band was on that record. But you're um, saying it was forced, no passion, just satisfying the record. No, it was. It had some good stuff, but it was again a self-produced. Um, oh, I see. Near near miss, you know. And the label didn't hear anything, and they did. They buried it. So that was that. And then we struggled. We got new management. We tried again and again, and we wound up with this little tiny deal that resulted in one of a kind. That's the one I'm talking about. In 82, you're talking about. And it has, you know, again, some decent near misses. Yeah. And 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 that and that led us to the 84 event where we said, the hell with it, we're done. And music's changing, too. Now it's all uh, electronic drum, drum machines. It's, yeah. Here know, comes a new wave, you know. It, we cut, uh, you know, we cut, let it, we cut, let it be me. <clears throat> Larry and me. This, this is going to be, okay, Hall & Oates had, <laughs> Hall & Oates had, uh, you've lost that love and feeling. Let's do that. We'll make a oh, really, You'll go really obvious cover. <laughs> and no sooner do we do that than, than Willie Nelson put out, let it, let it be me. <laughs> like, all right, can't win for trying. You can't get a break. You see, this is this is a dead end street. You're thinking, right? right. This is it. So eighty four happens. Wells passes. John and Larry Barry the Hatchet become the Nashville. That 
is a good album that doesn't do anything. We do uh, two years on it. We, we fold again. Um, we come back in 90 to do a, uh, an outdoor concert in Woodstock. Beautiful setting called Opus 40. You should look it up. It's fantastic. And it was a smash success. Labor Day weekend, 2,000 people on the lawn. I mean, it was just like, wow, this is really good. Let's keep doing this. So, um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I've missed the story. We come back in 1990 now. 87 is when we kind of folded. Yep, yep, yep. 90, Robbie Dupree, steal away, <clears throat> who I lived with when he was like not Robbie Dupree yet. All right. Yeah, we had a band house, a bunch steal of us. Away. Right? So Robbie had some connections in Japan and he was doing some productions. And he, so he hooked us up with this deal with Pioneer or something over, over Japan. So, you know, but yeah, so the plan was to come back and do two nights live theater right there out in Woodstock and we'll make a we'll make a, a single CD live album well we did that and it turned into a double CD live album so we got so much material out of this reunion um, and that's a really really good record I mean oh, so the band the band was a little bit bigger it had a guy uh, um, named Paul Brannan boy what a great guitar player and sax player Unbelievable. So Larry, John, me, uh, Paul, um, Bob Lineback, <clears throat> a couple other guys. And uh, so that was 90 and that set off the 90s. Meanwhile, I had moved to Nashville. I moved to Nashville in 89. Are you doing like session work for others or are you just? Committed? I moved down here on a, on a fortuitous phone call from some old friends that I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't heard from in 10 years. And it, it's a, it's a good long story, but the short story was I really, really, really needed a change. I was not doing well. I was at the bottom, really the bottom of my game. I was asking the universe for a sign, you know, help me out here, something. I get home. Uh, this is January 10th. Now, my birthday is the 9th. It's, Jan it's the day after my birthday, 1989. It was an answering machine. It's 89. And it's from Michael from Nashville. Call me back. Okay. Call him back. It's my old friend that I hadn't seen in 10 years. He, he and his little band, they'd gone to Nashville and struck it big with RCA, had a bunch of hits. And their singing bass player was quitting the band on the, on the eve of a 40-city tour opening to George Strait and, and Billy Joe Royal. And did I, did Universe I want, is speaking. Did I, did I want the gig? And the guy quit on my birthday. Oh, man. See, it had to be, man. This is it. Yeah, so, so that brought me to Nashville, and I was in their band and uh, for two years, overlapping this thing. I don't so, know this and, band. Or, I don't know this band. You Bailey, and, Bailey and the Boys. And they had their day. Okay. They had their day. And they had like 10... Like they never had like a career song, but they had like 10 top 10s. But you're getting paid. You're doing what you love. Everything's okay. That's right. So I changed my life. I'm doing that. I'm here in Nashville. Orleans rekindles. I'm, you know, straddling the fence on both those things. Um, <clears throat> I went on from Billy the Boys. I worked for Susie Boggess for a couple of years. I worked for other. And then come 94, uh, Orleans went to Japan. Actually, we went to Japan in 91. What am I thinking about? After we did that concert for Robbie's people in Japan that yeah. yielded the double CD, 
we did a tour tour Japan in 1991, and there's a laser disc of that, and that's fantastic too. That's killer stuff. That's like a really prime time, maybe peak time. Larry's voice was. And that's available. Unbelievable. That's um, available I have posted all this stuff to YouTube. It's all posted. You hear um, that, people? Search it on or, YouTube. Yeah, or, Orleans Online is the channel, and yeah. and if you look up, uh, you know. Japan, 91, like part one, two, three, all this stuff, all this history is posted there. That's what, that's what we did in the lockdowns. That's what we did all the last year, every week. Uh-huh. I called the library and would post some other show from, you know, all the different years and versions of the band. And so fast forward, 94, we did another tour of Japan. Um, we did a record for Japan called Analog Man. No. Analog Man and Analog Man was a song on it, and it was John and Larry. Yeah, and I me, have that. I have all these. Bob Lineback and um, Peter O'Brien on drums. And so, why Japan? It's just that they, they cling on to certain artists. They cling. On they to- they really love. They really love Orleans, and they were open to have these deals. And um, so we made that record for them, and it was the pre. We thought it. We were just gonna. We thought that would become a, a U.S. album. But by the time we got recording again, like a year later, we had a whole new batch of songs. And that's what you know as the Riot album, which for me is like some of the best stuff we ever did. So Analog Analog Man made the cut. Heaven got remade. Um, A couple of songs, you know, made it from Analog Man to Ride. But Ride had a whole new batch of stuff on it. And um, I like Ride. I like Ride. And uh, and. (laughs) You know, again, another that was on a label called Dinosaur, which was apt because they went extinct very quickly. <laughs> and so we packed it in again. I'm you know? wondering if a part of the resurgence at the time was did nostalgia start creeping in? I wonder, you know, there's that nostalgia. Uh, not quite. Not quite not yet. Not, not yet. quite yet. It's a 20 year cycle. Yeah, OK. All right. I was say you're getting close, though. Right. Yeah. So 94 was analog, man. 95 was. Right. And 95 economics were such that, no, it wasn't. So there was money to be had, but not for the whole band. So we did the whole year as trio, just John, Larry and me. And we played clubs and we, and, and we landed the opening hors d'oeuvre spot on the Can't Stop Rockin' Tour, which was Fleetwood Mac, Ario Speedwagon and Pat Benatar. Ooh, baby. And so our job was to do like 15 minutes in the front acoustically, just the oh, three of us. I don't. Okay, I don't we know. We packed up. Yeah, we packed up our stuff in a in a in a van. We had one, you know, man Friday, and us, and we would ride in the van, get to the gig, do the gig, have to leave right away to get part way to the next gig. They had buses. We just had us. I had maps. This is nineteen ninety five. I had all the little booklets from Holiday Inn and Econo Lodge and, and all that. And, and I had to figure out how far could we go and what hotel to book. And we had to go like two hours and then drive the rest of it. It was a crazy, crazy time. But so at this guys, time, though, are you married with kids? Is that getting in the way or no? I mean, how do I was am married, I getting too nosy? I don't know. No, I was married um, in, uh, well, when did we marry? 84. But we'd already been together five years. Well, that's but, interesting. Uh, You're getting married in 84 and that's at a low point in the band curve. That's, I mean, that's right. A- that's right. That's exactly right. So it, 
we were together in 77. Okay. Right. We started and 78 was great. Yeah. yeah. Rockstar. Second coming, all that. And then, and then crash and burn. And then 80, and then we finally married in 84. And then by 88, it, it was, it was done. Like I was, she really grew and I really caved. That's what I'm talking about. That magic phone call that saved my ass. Right. Yeah. So, so I went off and, um, and the next, and then I got, uh, long, then I, then I married again. I married in, um, uh, 80, where I'm, I'm seeing, 90, 91, uh, because, you know, the pregnancy and okay, here we go. So All right. Hey, my, my older daughter initiated that. And so I was that's married the universe the again. Time. That's the universe. That's right. And so married again uh, for six years, 91 through 96. And um, uh, so that we're still in that timeline. And then I, then I, if you want to know everything, then I, that's when I hit my bottom. That's when I bottomed out. That's when I, my life was just, a shambles. I was broke. I was out of work. My career was dead. Uh, I was angry. I was divorcing for the second time. I was, wow. I had two little kids, five and a year and a half old. And what we, year is this now? This, this is, is at the beginning of 96. Wow. So ride, we just finished ride. Yeah. I just put my heart and soul in it. I drive home. It's the holidays. It's over. Right. So come January, uh, 96, I'm, I hit my bottom. And that's when I, I, I had already lost all interest in drink and whatever. It wasn't any fun anymore. I just quit. I quit, but I had to fix my life. And so that's when I, you know, found my current spiritual path and all that stuff. But, uh, that was the turning point. And, um, we go from there, 96 through a few years of kicking around Nashville, working for, Interesting artists, nobody really big. Shelly Wright. And you're living in Nashville. You're yeah. living right there. Okay. I'm still there and I'm here now. Um, Matresa Berg, who wrote Strawberry Wine, Song of the Year. I did a little tour with her. So you're making uh, money, you're doing what you love. Uh, I mean, you're doing- yeah, I'm, I'm rebuilding my life. And uh, so, 97. Um, what's next? I think. And I then I was ready, to, ready to kick in. I think the nostalgia act is ready to kick in. So well, I, isn't I, that when it, does does John Hall now start start oozing back into your world because the whole representative thing was what early mid two thousands late two thousands no no we're getting there and eleven we're getting there and 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 we're taking our time getting there but we're doing it um, so there wasn't a hell of a lot going on. I did work with this great band called Kaylee Rain, um, Irish American pop. Yeah, I don't know. So that. Much, I don't know. That so much fun. So yeah. much fun. So great. <laughs> but there was there was absolutely no money in it, and I and I couldn't do that. And uh, but all this leads up, and then I worked for a kid named Andy Griggs, who out of the box had a number one country song, and that was a total fluke. He just saw me play for the writer of that hit at some showcase. And he came up and he said, you know, when I go out on tour, I want you to be in my band. And I'm like, yeah, kid, great. You know, he's 20 something and I'm 40 something. Yeah. And, right. and I'm like, yeah, okay, great. But he called me and, and I, and I spent almost two years with him, um, which led me to this 2000 concert 
in Woodstock that I mentioned before. Right. So Orleans reconvenes to do this outdoor show. It's a huge success. It's economically great. It's just so much fun and exciting. And we go, okay, let's do this again. So it's Larry, John, me, Bob, and Peter on drums. And that kicked off the 90s. We went to Japan in 91. We went again in 94. We did uh, the Fleetwood Mac thing in 95, trio gigs, 97, 2000, 2000 forward. Okay, so um, we did a lot of we did a lot of shows those years. I uh, we we made a compilation CD of live stuff. It was a thing to do. 2002, we put together like live from the vaults. Yeah, and it, it was just a collection of really so off the off the beaten track stuff. Well, you know, there's no real interaction with the bandmates, correct? There's no hanging out with your uh, brother. There's no uh, Larry's in Orlando. Like Larry. He was either still in Woodstock, moving to Florida. John was in New York. Yeah, but I mean, you're resuscitating old stuff just to keep selling some Orleans, correct? I mean, yeah, we were we were working. There was no great shakes. We were trying, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that leads up to, I guess. Uh, so John. Um, this is what happened. Uh, the Bush campaign, like John, you know, so just, we're, we're left leaners. John's a Democrat. The right. Bush campaign, as you hear these stories all the time, the politicians appropriate somebody's song. They get pissed off at it, you know, say, stop using my song. Sure. You know, right. So the Bush campaign used still the one. Oh. And John was oh, like, man, you're so, so John's like, cease and desist. <laughs> and uh, so with his history of activism, uh, somebody says, John, you know, you can continue to bellyache. You can do something about it. He says, OK, I will. And so he ran. So he decides he's going to run for Congress. And he had already been um, on the school board. He'd been a county legislator. You know, we figured he'd win. So we prepared for that. This is like 05. And we re-recruited. Now, in 81, we had a guitar player come in, a guy named Fly Amaro. And he was in the band for a year or two. And... Um, then we put it to bed and then, you know, I did told you the 80s story. Yeah. So we, we got Fly to come back in the band. This is his second time around. And it overlapped. So as John was on the way out, Fly was on the way in. We did another live album, wound up be called, uh, being called uh, We're Still Having Fun. And <clears throat> a DVD to go with that. And then John's election happened and he won. So John was gone. So now the band was... Oh, this is what I left out. In 2000, we had two bands. We had two bands. We had John, me, Larry. And up north, we had Bob Lineback and Peter O'Brien. And down south, <laughs> we had my brother Lane on keys, not Bob. And we had Charlie Morgan, not Peter, on drums. And Charlie was like a one of the top session players in London. He, he played for Elton John for 13 years. <laughs> You play with everybody. If you ever talk with Charlie, don't say a name because he'll give you a story. Oh, right. He's got a story about everybody and everything because he was really there. And so Charlie was in Florida. Larry met him. Blah, blah, blah. So Charlie started working with us. And then when we made, ah, this is what I left out, 2005, 
ish, we made another CD called Dancing in the Moonlight. We made our own version of Dancing in the Moonlight, finally, after all those years, because we had played it right before it became a hit. Now, to go way, way back to the beginning, when Buffalongo broke up, that spawned Orleans. It also spawned King Harvest. Oh. As Sherman Kelly, the writer of Dance in the Moonlight, and some other Ithaca guys, some who had been in Buffalongo at one point or another, went off and became King Harvest. So, one we play, yeah, we were playing Dance in the Moonlight as a fledgling band, but then it was a hit for somebody else, so we oh, couldn't man. play anymore because it was a cover. So, fast forward to 2005, we finally make our own version of it. It's the title of a CD. Uh, it incorporates some of the material from Ride that nobody had ever heard, really, and a bunch of new songs as well. And so on the heels of that, and we go into John's campaign and, and going off to Congress. And so the band at that point is Larry, me, Lane, Charlie Morgan, and Fly, Fly America, yeah. right? So, so that band persisted. 05 to 2012. And here's where we get to the second huge tragedy. Um, So there was no major recording in that time. There were a couple of songs written that are key right now. Um, Larry and I had, we, we were thinking we can do this crossover thing. We can, you know, if you look at Lady Antebellum, Keith Urban, uh, uh, Diamond Rio, um, Restless Heart, all these country acts that are pop acts, you know, like both. Yeah. Okay, we can do that. Let's hook up with some Nashville writers, write some really good songs, make that album. So we endeavored to do that in 2010, I guess it was, ish. And we only wrote two songs. And one of them is called No, no More Than You Can Handle. <clears throat> it was Larry's title, and he had written some lyric, some cockamamie lyric about the Gulf oil spill. And, and here's the irony. So I said, you know, the guy kind of kind of kind of guys we're looking for kind of songs you want to write are like when she cries by restless heart. Right. Which was a huge crossover hit. So who did we wind up writing with? We wrote, we wound up writing with Sonny Lemaire, who was the co-writer of when she cries. Sonny is a part of exile, the band exile. So, that song, No More Than You Can Handle, Larry had a title. Sonny and I hated the lyric. We threw it out. We rewrote the whole thing from scratch. And it's kind of it's become, and like eerily enough, part of a, a really mainstay of our show. And I'll tell you what. So it's basically a song about um, over, uh, like hanging in during adversity. Like you can do it. You can make it. You know, it's one of those songs. It's uplifting. It's really well written. <clears throat> and um, so we cut it, but you know, not, nothing ever happened with it. Uh, and then t- two years later, so we're at 2012, John had come out of Congress, wanted to be back in the band. There was no room because Fly was there and we, we were fine. We were a fine oiled machine. There wasn't really room. Plus things were going really badly, really badly. Our management was suing us. It was really bad. Doing it, periodic tours, no real hits, just staggering we, along. We were we were working, but because of the legal, because of lawsuits and all this stuff, 
you know, we were just sucked dry. Yeah. So under that duress and a lot of other stuff, um, Larry slipped away. He like, he, he, um, it's really kind of a mystery. What happened, what happened that day and why we were going to play, um, that week, this is a uh, July 2012. We were going to play, we're going to be on Fox and friends of all things okay. on their, on their, on their concert series out of New York city. We're going to go up and do that in the morning. You know, that's the thing, right? It's a, a liberal band going on a conservative show. But it was like, yeah, this is a cool thing. We had gigs. Hey, it's a gig. And and uh, Larry and I were just communicating as normal business stuff, email, and suddenly radio silence. Um, and then I got a call a few hours later from my younger brother. Like, are you sitting down? That kind of call. And uh, he told me that Larry had had uh, killed himself. And yeah. that was like... Earth shaking. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I can't even explain it. I'm sure no one's ready for that. And, and no, so, no, no signs leading up to it, in your opinion. Right? Well, there were there were plenty of signs, but there was the failsafe was. And, and let's be real here. I mean, at certain times in my life, I felt like, you know, it would just be easier not to be here. This is too hard. But I never had the, the guts. I, I never really. I might have thought about right. what it would be like not to be here, but I never had the guts. Most people have entertained similar. That's right. It's like, this is just too freaking hard. Yeah. Right. And so, and I knew Larry had those thoughts as well because I know him. And so I could see what was going on with him. And we talked about it at some, I remember specifically talking to him about it. And, you know, that's just not an option, right? Like that's not a thing. And he said, yeah, you're right. And, uh, for sure, he would not do that because he loved his two daughters so much. That was the stopgap. <clears throat> and yet it wasn't. So one day, I don't know what happened. We were communicating then it was all over. And um, that was just devastating on every level. So not to dwell on it. Um, suddenly everything was in my lap. It's like, what are we going to do? And we had like, I don't know, eight more shows to do that year. I had a quick, just, I had to make quick decisions. It's like, how are we going to, what am I going to do? What are we going to do here? Well, we're not going to go to New York this week. That's for clear. That's for sure. But I don't want to fold. I don't want to go out with a whimper. I don't want to just disappear. I want to finish this thing. And if this is year 40, sure. this is year 40 of the band. And I say, okay, we're going to, it's not like, are we going to do this? It's like, how are we, how are we going to do this? Like it changed the nature of the question. Sure. So I called John, you know, I called him to tell him about it. And then I called him back and I said, you know, can you come back and finish these shows with us? And call Bob, you know, Bob, can you do some shows? You know, how, how, can we finish this thing? And everybody threw in. Everybody was like, yeah. Uh, and at uh, that time, John's political career was over, at least as representative. Yeah, he was at it, yeah. And he wanted to be back in the band, but not this way. Right. So we gathered, I gathered the forces and it was the most difficult 30 days of my life. It was just hell. There were two bank accounts that I couldn't get into that I had to get into. There were travel logistics. There was Larry stuff. It was everything to figure out. It's like, how do we put the train back on the tracks? How do we do this? 
And I, it was me. It was on me. And I'm supposed to be grieving, right? And I've got to do all this practical stuff at the same time as I'm grieving my brother's death. <clears throat> so I can't even explain, but somehow, somehow I got through it. And 30 days to the day, we wound up doing our first show. And I wrote a blog that night. We went out to South Dakota to play a street fair. And I wrote a blog that night. This is like 30 days after. This is what it feels like. This is what's going on. And uh, that's preserved somewhere. But that was like, Jesus. So um, there were only eight shows to do. They stretched from August into November. I put together a uh, like a fundraiser concert here in Nashville to finish the year to raise funds for his kids because they were going to be okay. But in the interim, it couldn't hurt. And so many people wanted to help, you know, they want to donate. They want sure. to something. It was either money. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes but, it's tragedy uh, that then brings out the greatest of human emotions. And do you right. pick up on Larry's songs? Are you now the vocalist for his songs in honor of him? I believe. Yes. Yeah, so we'll revisit that. But I just want to mention, so this show that I put together, uh, so many Nashville artists came out and participated. John Ford Coley was there, Joan L. Mosser, um, Henry Paul from The Outlaws, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Bill Lloyd from Foster and Lloyd. I mean, Kathy Bailey, who had worked for Bailey and the Boys, and her husband, Michael. And anyway, so many artists Came. The respect and love oozing out. Right. And, and we did this big show and it raised some money and it was, that was, that was the end. And so I was, I was, we were done. Meanwhile, yeah, what you'd said was, how did you do it? Well, we all divvied up what we had to do. We learned, okay, I, I can sing dance with me, fly. You, you can sing still the one, right? Okay. Yeah. Like, like that. And okay. We can't ever do this song again. That's the, that's Larry thing. Yeah. I had to learn. I learned just how difficult love takes time is unbelievable. It's like, wow, I had a whole new level of respect and I had to like learn how to do it my way. It's but a vocal marathon, right? It's just his range and it's everything about it. So I had to like, we adapted, we filled in the blanks and I said, I just got to get through these shows and then we'll put it to bed. <clears throat> and I had done that in November. We were done and it's done. Meanwhile, I met this guy. We had one, like, uh, it's called the Harvard Square 75, live, live, 75 Live Harvard Square. It's a live record from King Brisket Flower Hour that this guy had licensed long ago. He came to town right after that we met. I never met him. Len Fico was his name. And he said, you know what, if you guys, you know, Call me. So he. So no. No sooner had we finished the last show. This is like Thanksgiving time. Len Pico calls me. He says, "You know, if you want to continue, I've got a tour for you next year, 2013." And I'm going, "Well, that's something to think about." And what that resulted in was called. Uh, it's. Uh, you see that poster there? Sailing Still rocking. Rock. Yeah. Okay. Christopher Cross. Us. Gary Wright, Firefall, John Ford Coley, Robbie Dupree, Player. They're, they're uh, playing off of Yacht Rock. That's their... Oh, sure. So Yacht Rock was taken, right? But this was a similar idea yeah. with, not, with not as good branding. 
but that was the <laughs> tour. That was the tour, and Orleans was the backup band. We played for everybody. Uh, I was the music director. So Charlie you're not Moore. on that concert? You're yeah, playing. Orleans was the second act. Oh, I was going to say, but yet you're playing in all the other ones too? That's right. So oh. we did our we did we did a five song set. Oh man. Christopher was the headliner. And Charlie Morgan and I held the whole thing together and Lane and Fly played some and John a little bit and we we played for all these acts. Wow. And and we we did the whole summer that way. And it was really great. And so I got to sing Sailing with Christopher Cross. And it was really great in its own way. And it got us back up and running. And and so 2013 turned into 14, 15, here we are. And all along the way, I'll go back to this. So that song, No More Than You Can Handle, Larry's title, that it was more than he could handle what was going on, but it's become a real moment in the show when I am able to mention him uh-huh. and, and honor him and say, this was the last one he and I got to write together. And, they, you know, he's no longer with us and which makes it all the more poignant, right. but it's a song, it's a song about hope of, of perseverance. And so it has had this lasting uh, ironic uh, impact and people hear it and they go, wow, I really needed that. I needed that right now. So it's so odd. Here's another irony. <clears throat> the state of my life, what has happened to me, for me, what I've had to do to grow. Because Since then. <clears throat> is It's been a real blessing in its own way. It's like a dark it's the other side of the darkness. It's like, the I would never be, yeah, I would never be the singer I am today if I hadn't had to grow into it. I would never, I came out of the shadows because I was always the right-hand man. And, and he left behind an opportunity for me, which is a whole nother thing. But he, if we have five more minutes, I'll tell you this story. So he had been part of a, a, a uh, a roster of singers for an, a thing called Voices of Classic Rock. We're talking 90s now. And it was a, a single band made up of a bunch of people, like Lane was in it, Charlie Morgan, a bunch of ringers, and then a stable of singers, singers from this band, that band, the other band. And they would do like a review, right? And so Larry would go sing a couple of Orleans hits and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so he... Uh, he recognized that the guy running that was a shyster. So he staged a mutiny <laughs> to take the singers away and do it. Do it we'll do it ourselves. Oh, so that right. became a thing called rock, rock and pop masters, which was the same thing, only a new, a new business entity. And so Larry was now at the helm and it was like Felix Cavalieri of the rascals and uh, Jill and Turner from deep purple. And uh, I mean, on and on, 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 on. it's like a, David Pack from, from Firefall, a couple of dozen guys. And that band, a bunch of, bunch of ringers, great players. And because there was some kind of conflict of interest with Orleans and that gig and this, so I got, I was the last guy into that band. They already had a great bass player. I came in to satisfy, to fix a problem. And I was the percussionist and the 
acoustic guitar player and the background singer and kind of the stage manager because I knew how to do all that stuff. And I was the last guy in the on the totem pole. Now, we did a bunch of outdoor shows for communities. We did a lot of corporate work, big shows like that with three acts, five acts, 10 acts, radio shows, that kind of thing. And there was one particular client down in, in uh, Orlando that had this massive annual show and then some smaller show holiday shows. And when Larry passed, the, the buyer, the head honcho came to me and says, can, can, you, can you take this thing over? Because I really want to keep continue to do this. And I said, yeah, I can't. I, w- I can't play sing like him, but I, I'm a much better organizer. It's what I do. I'm, I'm really good at that. I can right. do this. And so he gave me a shot. And so I became, from the last guy, I became the band leader. Sure. So even though I might be like the weakest player, because they're so good, because I wasn't even on my instrument. I wasn't even a bass player. I was doing everything else. I was now in charge of this thing. And it was really just a matter of, of a, it's like a middle management job. You gather material, right. you interface with the singers, you feed all the material to these guys and let them do what they do. You go to the show, you organ, you know, you, you just make it happen. And because the team is so good. And that has been, we've done 150 some odd acts. Oh, really? Everything from, you know, the four tops to yeah. the Google dolls to Def Leppard to <laughs> Billy, o- Billy Ocean to, I mean, you name it. Uh, we did a run DMC. I mean, you name it. We have done it. And, and I get to do, I get to do all that. <laughs> so, so you say now. Because Larry, because, because it was, because Larry left it to me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So all this opportunity, all this growth, all this, um, you know, it's a strange way to arrive there. Not the way I would have wished for, but it's, right. it's, it's, you know. Universe acts in strange ways. Do you feel in some ways now that you're at the top of your entire uh, professional game? In, or, or do you want to go back to 78, 79? I mean. No, you know, I would, I mean, I may, you know what my top of my game was? It's 2019 before COVID hit. And I'll tell you why. Because in that year, I was doing these massive multi-act shows. I was playing Orleans gigs. I was subbing for Mark Andes in Firefall because he needed a hip replacement. I was playing for Fearless Cavalieri in his Rascals band. Um, I had a. I was part of an Elton John tribute band here in. You know what I mean? I had oh, all busy, busy, busy. Every and just switching hats. All. Uh, I did an oldie show in Jackson, Tennessee, twice a year. That's like a, any and no eight acts there. So, so I, that, I had all that going on, just vibrant and alive. Yes, as stretched as I could be, uh, and 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 o- almost in overwhelm all the time, but but making it happen. And so twenty twenty was almost alive. That's right. So I don't know that I want to have that much on my plate again, but it that's. That's where I got to. And 2020, you know, everything changed. And now it's 2021 and Orleans is back working. And um, we're gearing up for another one of those massive shows next uh, next uh, February in Orlando. You know, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick is coming. And I just saw them last week. Howard Jones. And I mean, it's just so cool. So do you, uh, do you feel now like like what I said earlier, the, the nostalgia thing is kicking in. And if you were to graph this 
this this track of Orleans. It's at a low point in the 80s, starts climbing back up, up and down 90s. And now nostalgia is selling you guys uh, places you'd never had thought of because well, people my age are now when you know, the kids are grown and they want to hear their songs from their youth. No, it, it's it's happening and it has been happening. And if you go back to 2013 and the Sail Rock Tour. Yeah, last five that years. Was, that was, you know, seven or eight acts, each guy doing three to five, six hit, hits, all yeah. hits, like this, like a, like a mixtape, you know, of the original artists. And the crowds came out in droves and they loved it because that's the, the, the soundtrack of their lives. That's the, the baby boomers yeah. uh, soundtrack. Right. And it continues. And so we've done a lot of shows the last year to last few years, Poco us pure prairie league or, us Firefall, us Ambrosia, um, these kinds of shows, and a lot of with Coley and uh, and and Peter Beckett from Player, and you know, those kind of com, it was kind of three act shows. You know, we've done some headlining, simple things ourselves, but those are the shows that really work. What could we expect from uh, you guys in uh, here in Eastern Pennsylvania, Southern Tier, New York, New Jersey, something like that? You got anything for us? What's coming our way? Yeah, so the show you missed in Mount Tabor. Yeah, you could have you could have come to because it was private. <laughs> it was private because they they didn't want everybody descending on the community, but there was no policing of okay. the border. Anybody could have showed up. They just well, if I just showed up, I would have never emailed you, and we wouldn't be doing this now. So there's That's the universe right. again. I said I don't know you can come, but I don't know I don't know. Yeah. And, and as it turned out, you could have been there. Um, so we're headed back there um, in October seventh. We play in. Uh, Glenside, PA. Oh, sure, North Philly. And then we, and then uh, the eighth is at Englewood at the Bergen Center. See, folks, come on out and see Orleans. Here's your chance, baby. Right. Come on. The tenth is uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. And who do we have? We have you. We have John Hall. We have. Um, it's John, La- uh, John, myself, Lane, Lane, your younger um, brother. Um, and uh, and Charlie left us. In eight, 2018, so my, my buddy from Nashville here, Brady Spencer, is on drums. And here's the thing to know. So, unfortunately, Fly had a mild stroke um, just a few weeks ago. So, fortunately, he did it when we had downtime because we had to scramble. I mean, he'll be he'll be fine. He was, like, not paralyzed or anything, but, okay. but, but he can't tour. And we had to find a guy who could fill those shoes, who's kind of filling Larry's shoes. It's like, who's yeah. that guy? Right? Who's, who that can, guy? who's got that vocal range, sings really well, plays really great, is available, affordable, lives here in Nashville and ready to go and wants to do it. Who's that? You know. And so we sorted and sifted all these referrals for two weeks and we got down to two guys and we played with them and then one was the obvious winner and we've been rehearsing with uh, Tom Lane, who's our new brand new band member and i love it you know baptism by fire next week go to florida i thought you were Um, gonna say you cloned yourself no but it was like wow what stress to be under to but we'll make you know this is like this is what i do yeah i mean it's like i know how to do do this but it's no you know it's a lot of work to to get it all right so orleans pushes on this is great folks check out the uh, website if you want all the latest information right anything else we want to wrap this up with yeah so here's the wrap-ups uh next year is year 50 who knew 
Who, who knew? knew? 72, who knew? 72 to 2022. And we have eight gigs already booked for next year. So next year's year 50. The website is orleansonline.com. Please pardon the antique nature of it. It's a thing that needs a complete uh, redo. redo. Yeah. No, that gives it a cool, classic vibe. That's what it's that very, yeah. So, so that's, a, that's a project in waiting. And um, tour, you can find tour dates there. And here's the thing to know. While we were at home, we figured out, each of us figured out how to record ourselves at home. And we made a Christmas album. And it's done. And it, I have hard copy. And it, it's, uh, I just have to build a page. Oh, put it up for, for sale. So we have a new and all new music, very weird kind of Christmas album. Uh, that sounds just like my style. And now that it's, uh, you know, fall, you know how things go. Christmas is, uh, starts three months before. So now's the time to get this thing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, so there you go. That's our new project. It's brand new. It's not quite out yet, but it will be any day. And um, that's how we move forward. I love it. There's one thing I want to ask you before we end. Whose idea was this? There's you on the uh, side there. Come on. Who all the, shirtless, all the shirtless guys? Who, whose idea was that? Here's the story. Um, so, <laughs> and are you going to do it again? No, please. <laughs> so that's the infamous Waking and Dreaming cover. Yep. The label sent us over to the studio of Norman Seif, famous rock photographer, to make a cover. There was no, there was no idea. There was nothing. It was just go over there, and make a cover. And uh, so we did the standard stuff and, and, you know, the models are walking around there's holding the wine goblet. It's like that. And it's right. very, very LA seventies. And Norman says, you know, you guys are so stiff. Let's take off your shirts and see what happens. Get out. And so that's how it happened. That's and we're funny. not, we're not naked. We're just shirtless. <laughs> and, and, and if you'll notice, and this is pre-Photoshop. I'm this looking. Is, this is airbrushed. You see how John you has his eyes. Body there. John has his eyes closed. Yeah. And the rest of us are open. Now, on the back cover, it's reversed. And what they did was they took the head, John's head, from one and, and you know, flipped Because oh. <laughs> the title is Waking and Dreaming. Oh, nobody, nobody gets that. See? No, I, I've looked at that album cover a million times. I never got nobody that. Nobody gets that. That's the, that's the concept. And that is one of what somebody deemed one of the hundred worst um, <laughs> covers of all time and it, <laughs> on the internet. And it's actually the cover of the hard copy book of the hundred worst album covers. Is that right? right? I didn't know. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. And yet all press is good press, they say. Yeah, that's right. Look at how studly you look. Come on. I was like 140 pounds you know, <laughs> and three chest hairs. That's, oh, uh, Lance, what a great way to end. It's been great talking to you, man. This is excellent. I think we're all caught up on the life of you and Nor uh, Orleans, and I hope folks really enjoyed this. I did. You well, guys are you. awesome. Keep up the good work. Thanks for uh, letting me rant and go with deep into the story. No, it was good. We need the deep story on things. That's what's lacking in life. So we got the full story, and we surely appreciate that. And we'll be uh, seeing you at a concert uh, nearby soon. Thank you, Joe. I love you, brother. Thanks, Lance. Take care. Bye-bye. Curiosity. What are you so curious about? Everything. Mr. Curiosity.